Welcome to Texas Rising, a show that explores the driving forces behind the financial phenomenon that is the Texas miracle. Join your hosts, business leaders and dads, Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman, as they bring you luminaries from across the great state of Texas to talk business, culture, public policy, and much more. And now, coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, this is Texas Rising. Welcome back to the next edition of Texas Rising. We're here with my friend, Graham Fry, who's the outgoing CEO of Alpha and an inveterate educational entrepreneur. Looking forward to a great conversation on the state of K-12 education in the country as well as in Texas. And Graham, thanks so much for being here tonight with us. It's great to be here. Really excited to talk to you both. So I just want to get right to the heart of what we want to get to tonight. Give us your overall thoughts on the state of public education in America. That is a big question. We like to start out small. We like to start out small. (laughs) Thoughts on public education. You know, I think that education is in many ways, especially public education, which which is so important to the overall development and foundation of our country, presents itself with a great opportunity at this particular moment. You know, a lot of us who have kids spend a great deal of time with them over the last couple of years. We've we've sort of talked about COVID over and over again and how that's impacted education and how it's impacted the opportunity to see what kids are doing, to get an eyesight into the classroom, eyesight into the overall experience. And what that gives us is the opportunity to look at what education can be. If you think about overall industries that have been disrupted over time, insurance, finance, automotive, right? Look at Tesla. But yeah, education is still this thing that we really run the same way we have for multiple generations. There are a number of reasons for that. The the history of traditional education is well-documented. If we really go back to the roots of education, it was a small community of people who brought in tutors, who brought in individual folks to help their children really grow and prosper. And I think we got back to that in some ways during the pandemic. We figured out different resources. We sat with our children at kitchen tables. We also realized that education goes way beyond the, the core curriculum. And it's really my hope that as we move into this next phase, that we see that as a catalyst for some of the change that can happen in traditional education. And you have to remember that one of the most important parts of a a public education system is custodial, right? Many people need a place for their child to go that's safe during the day while they're at work. And that's just a a factual part of it. But when we start to think about the the potential with reshaping what education could be in the public landscape, using COVID and charter and voucher as a a catalyst for that, it really gets to be a a pretty exciting opportunity. And, And so if we think about the state of public education, I think it is returning to this point where it is this realization that we don't have it figured out, that it is going to be this moment of change and opportunity versus the older way to look at it, which is we kind of had this whole thing, we had we had an idea of exactly what that particular path was. And now I think we're looking at it with with a sense of change. I appreciate that. And I think that that lays the groundwork for a lot of the stuff that you've done, leaning forward and bringing new models into the world. You recently led a school called Alpha based out of Austin, which is a very unique model. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through what Alpha is and what the methodology behind it was? Sure. So when we think about, and this goes back to where disruption can occur in, in education. Alpha was started with three basic promises. The first promise was, and is today, your child should love school, which when we think about our overall educational experience, we think about being middle schoolers. A lot of days you probably didn't really love. I mean, I, I can tell you that when I walked into, and I went to a great great K-12 school. When I walked in that locker room, that middle school locker room, I was scared. I don't know if I love those moments, right? <laughs> you know, you and me both. <laughs> yeah. And then you think about the teaching component and trying to keep up. And the first premise of, of Alpha was to look at a seven-year-old and eight-year-old and say, hey, the next few years of your life are just going to be kind of grueling ultra traditional. You're going to move through the day with a bell system. You're going to see snippets of information, but never really given a chance to master it. And it's not going to be your own space. Oh, and Um, by the way, most of your teeth are going to be falling out during that time. You know, it's kind of a weird thing to tell a kid, right? 
Exactly. Or you're going to go through middle school. You're going to go through this, this coming of age moment. And it's, you know, you're going to be trying to figure out your body and all these things at the same time, you're going to have all this pressure about getting into high school, just, you know, just an off thing. So the idea, you know, first was what if we, what if we really made it a place that kids could be fully engaged in their day, that they could use the space in the way that they wanted to. So, so the space would be like a startup where there were no real classroom spaces that we, you know, it was super comfortable chairs. You could study where you wanted to go, wanted to study. What if you had control over what you wanted to do that day in the same way that we do? You know, I have a list of to-dos and I can decide what I need to do first and how much time I'm going to spend. And as long as I'm accountable and responsible for those things every day, I can I can choose, you know, what I want to accomplish. And then imagine this. What if I could go to the bathroom when I wanted to go to the bathroom or get a snack when I wanted to get a snack? I mean, revolutionary ideas, right? And so that's really what we led with. We led with this concept that, you know, Alpha could be this place that kids really loved, that they felt, felt engaged with and they felt ownership over. They felt a sense of responsibility and accountability. The second part of Alpha was the kids would learn twice as fast. And that was our funder and founder's revolutionary idea that we could use adaptive software to do the bulk of instruction. When we think of adaptive software, we're, we're, we're basically looking at programs like Khan Academy or IXL. The idea that every child would be on their own learning plane or platform or, or pathway and that they would be working on the, on the content that they really needed to focus on themselves. So if we think about sixth grade and we have 100 kids in sixth grade, we have a very natural curve. There's some kids at the upper end of that curve who are ready really for seventh grade content. And they're just chomping at the bit to get done with sixth grade because they want to go do seventh grade. And there are other kids who may be at the other end of that curve and they feel like they're being pulled along and they're really struggling to understand what's happening in the classroom and they don't feel very smart, which is totally unfortunate. In fact, of those hundred sixth graders, every single one of them is in a different spot. So what if you could actually create a plan for every single child? where the child was working on exactly what they needed to be working on. And so when they're working on math or they're working on language, they feel really good about it. And they look at their peers and they're not worried whether their peers are working on a problem that's ahead or, or, or behind them. They're just working on the problem that they're working on. And so what happens is that kids get rewarded for their output, just for their work, for their engagement. It's very similar if we all went to the gym we're all working out for 45 minutes. If we're putting in a bunch of effort, we can all congratulate each other and feel really good about it. And so that was the second piece of alpha that was really important. And we discovered that adaptive software is extremely effective and it would produce great, great test results. And so it really was a you know very revolutionary way to think about school. The software then enabled us to be more efficient with our school day. We found that we could reduce a 45 or 55 minute classroom period, you know, to anywhere between 20 to 35 minutes. And then that meant that the rest of the day could be spent on life skills. Imagine if you had personal finance in middle school. Imagine if you learned how to do your taxes. Imagine if you learned how to do a presentation or do non-academic writing. I'm not sure if you guys write a lot of five paragraph essays anymore, but uh, for the most, <laughs> of us, <laughs> most of us, blog posts, right? Really good emails, really effective communication and short bullet points. Imagine if we started teaching that to children at a younger age. Imagine if we taught children how to give and receive feedback, the importance of that skill set at a really young age. And so that was really the overall approach. So it was those, those three pillars. It was love school that led into this 2X learning component that then led into life skills. And it's been a, a really successful project. So, Graham, you bring up a, a really interesting point in terms of better life, whether they be professional or life skills taught very much earlier on in the process. I'll give you an example. You know, it's one of those things that's just frustrated me to see that some of the two of the some of the uh, most dominant foreign languages in high schools today are still German and French. And with all due respect to the German and French peoples, th those are not world dominant languages anymore, right? So mm -hmm. it seems like to be a diminishing return for our students to spend time learning those languages. Or, you know, for example, you know, why do the vast majority of kids that studied business have to wait till their freshman, sophomore year for the first time for them to get a lesson sure. on the time value of money, right? And so sure. my question then is, does business need to take a more hands-on direct role with both uh, public and private institutions across the state of Texas to help set curriculum in terms, obviously the state sets curriculum, local communities set curriculum granted. Do businesses need to take a more active role in, in, in trying to help set that curriculum? 
So I would, you know, a couple different components to your to your question. There, there is this theory that schools are really good at preparing children for two things. One is college and, and the other is the workplace. But schools have really no connection to either of those. With all due respect, teachers are not working in a traditional workspace. They don't understand a profit and loss statement. They don't understand a balance sheet. They're not working in a in a in a in a in that type of industry. And nor like me, they went to college decades ago, so they're fairly disconnected from the way that colleges work today. I think the first piece of this is, you know, if I'm an if I'm a prospective employer, I'm really excited about reaching down into the school system and explaining what are the skills that I need a graduate to have immediately. The second thing that I think is really interesting is imagine if I could graduate high school with a two-year degree in a major that was relevant. So there are programs in the state of Texas, on-ramps, dual enrollment that exists with community colleges. But just imagine if instead of that academic track, we actually went out to major employers throughout the state and we talked to their human resource folks and said, hey, what are the three to four skills that you really are looking for in a, in a young employee and somebody who might be in a young management track? And then we introduced to schools the opportunity for kids to study those skills and then actually graduate with a two-year degree as well as their high school diploma and go right into the workforce. You would eliminate potentially two years of college debt. You would provide employers with a young, motivated employee who actually has these skills that they've been focusing on for two years of school. And so I completely agree with this idea that we need to have more influence from employers on, on what it really means to be employment ready or job ready, right? What, what does that mean for, for a high school senior? We, we classically always debate this with kids. Why am I studying this? What is the relevancy of this? And if we go way back, if we think about, you know, the John Adams of the world, and we think about when you were ready to go to university, you were ready to go to university as soon as you completed your studies. It actually had nothing to do with how old you were. Now, granted, we know that coming of age and 18 is a really important year. However, there, when you're ready for what is next, you should really go do what is next. And so I, I get really excited about the idea of creating a separate group of pathways, like an applied CS pathway, where as a, as a junior and a senior, I know I would be doing, I know I'd be completing my high school curriculum. At the same time, I would be doing a amount of work that would actually get me a well-paying job right when I graduate from high school, which then eliminates my need to take on a bunch of debt. If I choose to go to a four university, I've already got two years of work that's that's completed, or I can go get a job and then get some real work experience and then go complete a degree, a four-year degree if necessary. So I think there are all kinds of interesting pathways. And, and one, is, one of the things that's unique about Texas, we're such an entrepreneurial state. We're so entrepreneurial when it comes to thinking about industry differently. And ultimately that's going to bleed into education in that sense. So I want to go back to one of the tenants you all had at Alpha, which was the learn twice as fast. And I read a really interesting article yesterday on the front page of Hacker News. It was called There's No Speed Limit. And it was about mm -hmm. a gentleman who went to the University of Berkeley for music and found a mentor who basically taught him the first semester of the Berkeley class in three hours, sat down on the, on the keyboard, did all the chords, and like that learning actually accelerated such that he passed out all his classes. Right. And as I look at my kids, look at my education, like how do we accelerate and get kids to their full potential? And at the same time, there's a whole cohort of kids, to your point, that are, are barely keeping up. How do you think about scalability of some of these really innovative models that, mm -hmm. to some extent, are kind of biased towards people who are already high-performing education folks who want to learn? Vice, mm -hmm. you know, we have literally hundreds of thousands of kids in urban districts and other areas that maybe didn't have a great family background or barely keeping up. How do you think about allocating resources and those two like very different things where a society needs to to somehow educate and manage? Yeah, there are a couple of different threads to your question. I think the speed limit comes because adults impose artificial standards and barriers on children. We do it all the time with our own kids sometimes. You're going too fast. My favorite example, I just did this with Dave Perel and I was talking about this. I don't know if you remember this, but I would read ahead in middle school and high school. I'd read like the next chapter because I'm really excited. And I'd walk into class and say, hey, I just read chapter eight. 
and the teacher would look at me like, we're only supposed to read through chapter seven. I'm like, yeah, but I was really excited. Like, no, 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 you can't read ahead. How dare you go beyond, right? And you're thinking like, okay, right? Yeah. Or the kid who's like, I'm just really excited about that next math problem. And you're like, well, you, you're, you, we're, we're here, right? Same. So, so I think that that is, we, we just, we put these artificial, this is going to be too hard for you, or it's going to be too, too, too difficult. And versus letting kids like, I don't know, go try it. And then you, sometimes you're amazed. And you know what? Sometimes it's too hard and it falls apart and that's okay. And the kid goes, all right, how do I figure this out? And sometimes it, it's not right. So I think that's the artificial barrier that we put in on children that we've really standardized in our systems that, that's unfortunate. And we just get, you know, our, that's a whole other conversation about, I believe our, our relationship with risk and children has just completely been warped and, and it's really detrimental to, to, to children in that sense. We, we're just producing a very fragile group of children. If you look at the top 10% of, of learners in the country, they're really well-serviced. It is the most competitive realm. It is the, it, it is hardest to get from 90% to 100%. In, in any sort of uh, grade level, right? That's where the most, it's, it's easy. It's particularly easy to get from 50% to 90%. It's really hard to get from 90% to 100%. And what we should see in that is that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to provide resources to, for lack of a better term, under-resourced communities. We have to be careful and it is, it is not just, it's just not, not just impoverished areas. It's not just districts that are not being successful, but it really, it's the extent of all, you know, all of education of, of kids who, especially with COVID, are really struggling. I was with a, a gentleman from the Hoover Institute not long ago. If children today get back to their 2020 learning level, uh, so their pre-COVID learning level, they they will experience between six and seven percent less in their overall income for their lifetime, and it could cost the United States up to about seven trillion dollars in GDP. And that's just 2020, because in 2020, we were already moving in this negative direction. It's the first time ever that we've seen sort of sort of the mean continue to, to, to drop. And so, you know, I think that what is what is possible is, and this is where I think we have to become sort of tactical about this, right? It's like, okay, we we have a group of kids that are now all over the board, right? Go back to my sixth grade example. And if we apply software appropriately, to start to bolster some of these skills, right? To really create this level of mastery and really create this acceleration, similar to what we experienced at Alpha. I think you'll be able to, and, and there's some other groups that are doing this. I think you'll be able to, uh, you know, to move kids back into a, to a point where they can be competitive. And so it's a really critical time to, to really take advantage of the software that exists and to really address the problem head on. It's not gonna go away. And, and, and nor is it fair, I believe, to put that burden on a singular teacher who may have between 20 and 40 children in the room, right? That's a, that's a really hard task. And so we have to, instead of thinking about what is, you know, what is a better lever, we have to actually change the lever, right? We have to, you know, we have to rethink the problem and figure out a new way to approach it. Because what we know in our current system is that there's, even if we got back to the way it was post, you know, a pre 2020 or pre-COVID, we would still be in this decline. And now we have to make up for the decline plus the, le the learning loss we've experienced over the last two years. So, uh, you know, I think that to me, the most exciting thing actually is, is building new models that can help, uh, you know, not only rural kids, not only urban kids, but suburban kids as well. And, and really taking an approach that provides a multitude of school models to, for every community. That that really is what I think we need to focus on. So, Graham, you, you know, you you mentioned we were just talking about uh, resource allocation, also talking about how over time the mean has continued to regress. And let's talk about and we talk about public education here in Texas or nationwide. You know, the elephant in the room is is funding, right? And so, help us help our listeners better understand how you think. Funding plays a role in these uh, eventual success of, of outcomes in public education, because it seems like to most folks, the debate boils down to, well, if you want better outcomes in public education, you just need more funding, more funding, more funding, more funding. And there's a lot of districts both around the state of Texas and nationwide to where we're seeing that that's not always the case, that higher funding does not always equate to better outcomes. So can you kind of walk people sure. through what that debate looks like and kind of what your take is there? Sure. And I am, you know, I, I am, I am 
no expert in public funding models or that's that's not where I spend the majority of my time. But what I can tell you this is, and this is an unpopular opinion, I don't believe it's a funding problem. We have a habit in education to, you know, it goes back to my lever analogy. Instead of rethinking the lever that we're pulling, we just we just pull the same lever different different ways. And that becomes extremely expensive. You walk into a school and you know you you, you sign in at the front desk to get to get your kid out of class. And you, you sign in at the front desk and then you go to another room and you sign a slip of paper, which is handwritten, and that that person hands it to another person, right? And then another person actually goes to the classroom to get your child and then escorts them down. So we're like five people in, and I'm just picking up my kiddo to go to the dentist. It's just an incredibly inefficient system. And the difference between education, you know, it, it's, well, let me rephrase this. One of the things interesting about education is that education will borrow every once in a while systems from business, but business is never borrowing software from education, right? Maybe a Quizlet or something like that. But yet so many of the tasks are really similar and CRMs, so on and so forth. And so, you know, ultimately public education is just an, an, an education at large, including private schools, is an incredibly inefficient system. It is largely human endeavor. So there, you know, you, it is largely a system that is plagued by legacy facilities. So these are really expensive. And I believe that there is the ability to restructure and become more intelligent about the deployment of this of the actual curriculum that's there. At the same time, some of the per pupil funding numbers are, are pretty paltry. And if we think about, you know, you know, what it costs to actually drive a child through the system, it costs much more than, than what is being funded. In my mind, there are two answers to that. One answer, obviously, is you can always chase more funding. I think the last time I looked, the budget in Texas is somewhere around 50, 54 billion for, for education. I mean, it's, it's pretty large. So one thing you can chase is, well, we just need more money. I look at this a little bit differently. I think about it like, okay, well, if I've only got this much money, like what can I do? So, so go back to your question about language. If I have a limited amount of funds, maybe I, I can't offer French. Actually, maybe I don't offer a second language at all. Maybe that's something that we do outside of school because reality is it's not as relevant as it once was, right? Which is a completely unpopular opinion. But how effective is language learning in school? Arguably not very effective. Many of us took lots and lots of language classes and we can't remember much of that sophomore Spanish or French or German, whatever we took. And so the other problem is that we, um, we ask every community school to solve every problem that every child has when they walk up, walk to the door. And so just imagine that, you know, if I've got a, a if I'm Houston ISD or a, one of these big ISDs and anytime a child walks up, it is my responsibility to provide that child with an education, which is an awesome task. At the same time, it's an impossible task. Mm -hmm. And the child who needs a lot of services and the child is super accelerated, potentially, you know, yes, there's some funding and there's some ways to move money around, but the, the, the baseline is I'm using the same sense of dollars. Now, private schools, different problem, right? Because they don't have that same, same thing. So I think that it, it's really the way we've set up the problem that leads to the funding issue. If I have to take every child who walks across the threshold and I have a very limited number of dollars, and I don't have the opportunity space to be really innovative because of the bureaucracy that exists around it. Sure, I'm gonna I'm gonna run out of money, right? And so we have to go back to rethinking that problem entirely. And so I I, I really push back on this idea. And I granted, I've not run a big district. I've spent a lot of time with those guys. I have a ton of respect for them, but I push back on this being purely a funding issue. You know, uh, one of my stories I like to tell about this was. Um, I love the idea of getting people, same people in the room. And one of my favorite things to do is to get all kinds of different educators together and talk about the same thing. Educators usually work in silos. We're, we're really bad about sharing ideas because we always feel like we're competing with each other, which is nonsense. There are tons of kids. Back in Arizona, when I was running a, a pretty successful private school, we used to do a bunch of stuff with the local district. 
And I would invite all these other districts and we'd invite all these other private schools. We'd go spend, we'd have lunch and spend the afternoon talking about all the things we're doing in Oregon. And one time we decided to take this really cool sort of field trip. And I said to my friend who was the superintendent of the local district, was like, hey, can you get a school bus to just take us all? Because that's going to be the most efficient way to do it. And he just sort of looked back and he looked up and he looked at me. He's like, man, do you know what it takes to get a school bus? I've got to have my assistant fill out this form. And then I've got to figure out where we're going to get the money. And then I got to figure out who's going to drive. And then I got to figure out. And I said, stop. I'll just, I got a school bus. I'll, it's fine. I'll, I'll do it myself. All I have to do is ask. He's like, man, I'd appreciate it because <laughs> just think like, poor guy just to get a school bus, right? It's just this form and this form and this thing and this thing. And he's just tied by all these things. And I just can't imagine, again, I haven't run one, so I don't know, but I just can't imagine how difficult it is that, you know, when every child's walking across the threshold. You know, one of the questions I have is, is a little more meta. And I look at like the, the traditional system we have right now where folks show up and they sit in nice, neat rows in the classroom and they maybe take classes for an hour. And one could argue then the early 1900s, maybe you wanted to train folks for a certain type of job in the factories or whatever. But as you think about it, Graham, like what, what should be the purpose of K through 12 education in the 21st century? You like asking these really big questions. <laughs> well, it's the first principles thing. Like if we don't know what we're aiming for, for sure. how can we design the system around it? Yeah. You know, and I think it's a great question. And I, and I think a bit of it goes back to education was largely very flexible over its history until really the late 19th century. If we go back to the origin, if we think about people like Alexander the Great, right? If we think about uh, the, the notion of, you know, potentially owning a small farm and if all three of us owned uh, small farms uh, and one of us said, hey, I just hired somebody to teach Latin. And, and he said, oh, great. My kids will come over at that point in time. But it was it was really applicable to whatever you were the, the concept of apprenticeship, right? It was really applicable and flexible. It was not something that took up the whole day. It was not custodial. And so I believe that certainly education today is, is disconnected from what the, or what are the outcomes that we, that we want, but your question is a really important one. Every time I sit down with a, a school leader or a board or a private school, I talk about backwards mapping. I ask a pretty simple question. What is it that you want the graduate of this institution to know, to be able to do? And often it's really lofty, right? I want these children to be world citizens. I want them to be, I want them to understand empathy for others. I want them to, and then my next question is, where in your program do you do those things? And they'll say, well, we teach foreign languages and that introduces our children to the, to the, to the world. And I, like there's, that's not, there's no direct correlation right there. We have a, a social emotional learning program and that teaches empathy. Eh, I really push back on it. And so you have to start by saying, here are the two to three things that I want every child to be able to do when they walk out of here. And these are the things that our program is going to do. There, there's all this mission creep it happens in companies, it certainly happens in schools. Schools have been asked to do all kinds of things, right? Not only do we have to be a state champion in football, we also have to be a state champion in robotics. We have to produce the great debate team. Plus, we have to do all the core academics for this huge swath of kids. Plus, it's you really have to feed. Plus, you have to feed my kid two meals a day, farm to table, and you know solve all of their emotional problems. And you better get pickup down to fifteen minutes because I don't want to wait. So, you know, so I think it is, uh, and and with this, we've also lost the notion of a community school. I have this little place in Idaho and they take off a certain number of weeks every fall for the spud harvest because they're picking potatoes and they're helping out their parents on a farm. And nobody thinks twice about it, right? Three, four weeks off a year. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. There's schools that I've been connected to take hunting season off because that's one of the ways they feed their families. Mm -hmm. right? And it just, it, it, you know, the season happens when it happens and off you go. Well, hell, I mean, hell, the, the K through 12 calendar and certainly in Texas and most states is still fundamentally based around an agrarian seasonal calendar, right? Yeah, there, there are a couple different misconceptions when we think about the agrarian piece of this. There were a couple of papers in the late 19th century that actually talked about uh, the importance of summer was that kids needed a brain break, that if we had too much school, there, there it would actually cause some mental harm. There are lots of different 
I've never gotten to the heart of exactly, and this is something I need to appeal to somebody who's who, who spent more time of why we have summer vacation the way we have it. But it is to, to think about this. I mean, just if we if digress for a second. If I'm a fifth grader and I finish fifth grade, I take in Texas, you know, I'm finishing late May. I've got all of June, all of July, about two weeks of, of August. And I show back up in, in, in August and I have a new teacher in a new classroom with a new group of kids with a new schedule. It's the same thing as getting a new job every year. Imagine if we finished our job in May and we had this nice summer where we just got to sort of take a little sabbatical and all of a sudden, bam, we had a new boss and a new place. And we had to figure it out real quick, super fast. And then we finally, by the time we figured it out, guess what? We're back on sabbatical. And then we that's do a, it again. That's a great analogy. I, I've never thought about that way. That's a great analogy. Zero sense. We don't do that to ourselves, right? We talk about consistency. We talk about the importance of kids having fundamental security and safety and the idea that they are, you know, that they they know they're known and loved. I mean, it's really important, but how, like, if their teachers are constantly changing, it's really hard to get to that point. You know, I think that that is, uh, you know, if we, if we just think about, uh, the way that we manage kids through this process, it is, it is, is, it's, it's largely fairly difficult. But we go back to your original question. I think that this is the point that really has to change. This is what I talk about when we think about what is a different lever. What is the purpose of education today? Is it just getting kids into college? What's the purpose of college in the modern sense? Go back to my little thing about you know the five paragraph essay, right? If we reflect on college. Is a four year? Is it? Does it have to be four years? This really makes sense. I have one college age young man, my family, my my eldest son. You know, college is a four hundred to five hundred thousand dollar endeavor. He looked at me and said, "This isn't worth that." It wasn't me. It's like, why would I do this? That's a seed round for a startup that could like change the world. Change the world, right? Yeah. Uh, or it's a lot of debt, right? A lot of debt. And wait, you know what we don't do? We actually don't teach kids in high school that they're going to college as their first major business decision. I'm going to graduate from college. I'm, I'm going to graduate from high school. I'm going to go to college. And the first thing I'm going to do is sign a piece of paper that says I owe $40,000. Never had a job. I might have had a job, you know, bagging groceries at HEB or doing something great, landscaping, cutting grass, whatever it is. $40,000. Imagine if I don't finish. I'm a year and a half in, I've got all this debt and I actually don't have the piece, you know, I don't have the degree. So I think, you know, absolutely right. We need to rethink what the purpose of education is. We need to think about how efficient it can be. We need to think about what are the outcomes that are really appropriate and make sense. And we need to think about that relative to the amount of information that's available to us. It's always been my belief that I could take a really, really smart kid who's entrepreneurial and stick them in a library and they can learn everything that's there. The internet's changed that completely. Benny, you and I have talked about this. When I was in India talking to school networks there, you know, they would say, look, we have access to all the information. Information has completely become democratized from that perspective. We can go get whatever we need. We don't, we don't know how to take that information and plug it into school. That's where an alpha comes in, right? The, the, the beauty behind that. But these kids have access to so much information. And if you really talk to your kids about subjects they're interested in, you'll see them drill down on the internet. My eldest son has a Twitter feed, which is curated just for the war in Ukraine. And every day he will send me a note about some sort of obscure thing that he's discovered, a foreign policy paper, an issue with the Russian military, whatever it happens to be. And he will read four or five different articles There'll be some marginal revolution stuff in there, some Tyler Cowan. There'll be all these great things that are in there. He's never taken a course that's ever come close to that, right? He's learned all that on his own. Mm -hmm. And so it really makes you pause and go, what are we doing this for? And so I, I'm not going to be the person who's going to say, I know what the purpose of education is going to be. But I do believe it is this opportunity and go back to the early question of, if we're the state of Texas and we know that we're attracting all these major businesses and we're, we're really thinking about this is going to be the fuel that, that is going to continue, these employees are going to continue to be a part of these great, this great industry and this great economy that is Texas. How do we take those leaders and take those great HR departments and say, okay, how do we shape what we do next? Right? How do we use this as that opportunity? Can you describe to us 
what kind of innovative models are emerging in Texas in particular that you're really excited by? So folks kind of know what's out there and what sure. they're look out for. Yeah. Okay. Texas, innovative stuff. I'm always super excited about Acton. It's been around for a little while now. I love the idea that children's curiosity fuels school, right? So the kid's excited about what they're going to do every day. My buddy Ray Gern, Higher Ground, has relocated his company here. Uh, Higher Ground is, you know, one of the best models, zero years old to six years old in the country, possibly the world. And they just do such a wonderful job at Montessori. They're really bright about it. They're really well-trained teachers. They're super earnest. Basis is here now. Basis historically has been arguably the best charter program in the in the in the country. Maybe just one of the best programs overall in the country. Really accelerated from a curriculum perspective. I love the habits that they teach kids. Um, they 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 you know it's a lot of rigor and a lot of hard work, but kids respond really well to it. Um, and it just shows you know we talked earlier about the standards and what you can push from 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 that. And obviously, I love Alpha. Right, the idea of what you can do with with adaptive software and what's possible and potential from, from from that perspective. Little school in Austin that I love called Longview, which is a math centric school. Uh, it's not growing past Austin, but if you're here, you should you know you should take a look at it uh, from that perspective. And and then there's some national trends that I think will work their way into the into the Texas community. Uh, there's a program called Prenda, which is really a parent driven charter school model, which really allows you to, to spend more time with your kids in a, in a small, small pod type environment. And you can't forget the models that are that are not just school centric. There's models like Kinjo, which uh, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, so your kids may play Roblox or Minecraft, right? What are they doing when they're actually on there? So Kinjo actually creates this ability for kids to for parents to look in and see what their kids are doing and then actually create quests on top of that. There's Synthesis, which was started by the, the Ad Astra guys, which I, I really like. There's a little company called Join Ender, which is uh, Texas-based. They're all Texas companies. Synthesis is actually California. Mostly they're Texas-based companies. Uh, Join, Join Ender is an Austin-based company. It actually takes Minecraft and enables kids to build a portfolio of skills that then they can market um, so that at a young age, they can go get a job. So the Kinjos and the and the, the those types of programs, the, the joint enders are really neat. It's such an exciting time in education, uh, not only because of the mainstream programs that are changing, because the fact that people are actually taking that step to be entrepreneurial and build those new programs, but also there are these these side programs, right? My favorite one of my favorites is Hack Club. Uh, they spend a bunch of time here. You know, it's all student run, but it's the largest group of of computer science programs. I can go on and on about this. There's just so much richness out there that you can go find. And this goes back to sort of my statement of saying, figure out what you need from your school and then figure out how much more, you know, what, what more can you create from a pathway perspective for your children? And I'm not talking about running all over town and, 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 and just all the extracurricular stuff. A lot of the stuff is just simply online stuff that you can do at home. My favorite thing to do for kids in the, in the summer is for them to play and read. But so I'm not talking about just pushing them all over town, but there's really a lot of great stuff. And I will tell you the amount of good stuff coming out of Texas is Amazing, and and I'm a little biased towards Austin because I'm here. But it, it you know between UATX right and these K twelve programs, it is it is happening here. Uh, the education entrepreneurship that's happening in Texas is extraordinary, second to none. So, Graham, that's a kind of just to to wrap up here. I guess my fundamental question to you is, you know, with that with that mindset and in terms of, you know, continuing as, as a state continuing to put, um, put workers into the workforce that, you know, provides that fuel that drives the Texas economy into the, into the future. How can we as, as parents, how can we as communities continue to help foster and drive innovation in our schools? What can, what can we do? What can listeners do? I think the number one thing is to be involved. We, for a long time, have simply put our kiddos in a in a plan and just followed along. We've just we've just stuck to that pathway. And we've and, and in many cases our kids were in great shape and we've they're they're great people in schools who are looking after them. But I think we have to at this juncture take a step back and think about ourselves as parents and as families and first and foremost decide What's what are, what are the value system? What's the value system of our family? And what are the outcomes and the pathway that we want to build for our ch- children? And then we have to you know work with schools to make sure that they are 
supporting that academic pathway for our children. And, you know, it is my true belief that schools aren't supposed to be the solution for all things that are happening in families. It, it is my belief that, that schools are, it's a little bit like a toolbox. I, I, I want my school to create this academic toolbox for my, for my child, and I'll take care of the, the, the values and the systems and the SEL and all that stuff after that, right? The, the, the social aspects of it. But, you know, first and foremost is be aware. It's pay attention to who the school board is, right? There's a lot of conversation about that right now throughout the country. Um, it's get to know your teachers, right? Get to know who's teaching your kids and figure out how you can support them. It's pay attention to what they're doing in school, right? And it's also understanding that they're, you know, you, your kiddos are going to need support outside of what happens at school. Uh, they may need some acceleration and, and you can provide that, right? Don't, don't push that all back on the school. They may need some bolstering. It doesn't mean your child's behind. They just, they may need some policy and some skills. Take that upon yourself. Don't look for somebody else to just go solve those problems for them, right? Um, and, you know, I think if you can create that type of environment for your children, that you'll ultimately be more successful. Um, and I think the final thing that I would say, as I say, say to most parents, most parents, I go back to this pathway thing. Don't get caught up in the cocktail conversation, right? Don't get caught up in where my kid is going to college or what my kid's reading versus what you're reading or so on and so forth. Think about your children as individuals and think about how that fits into your family values and the outcomes that you want to go see. And, and how are you putting that pathway together for them, right? Um, how are you exposing them to things that are really important to you, whether that's faith, whether that's service, right, community. Um, think, think about how you're building that resume for them and helping them do that and, and do that with, with an earnest uh, outlook. Well, Graham, thanks for that. And thanks for the preview. UTAX uh, panel is going to join us next week for our post-secondary education discussion. But I, I love the passion you have for education and how you've devoted your life to this. It's inspiring. And thanks for doing what you do and can't wait to see what's next for you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation. Graham, thanks, buddy. Take care. Take care. All right, well, folks, we're going to try something new this time. Instead of uh, doing Hear You, Hear Y'all, we're going to dive into a little debrief on the conversation we just had with Graham. So, Jeff, initial reactions. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, listen. I, I, it's the it's the age old question. You know, how how, how do you disrupt an, an established industry? And I think there's a lot of different ideas that that people have. That you know, a lot of low hanging fruit when it comes to driving innovation in education. But I think Graham brought up a, a really a lot of really good points. And and I think my fundamental question is, do we have a bureaucracy, an established bureaucracy that allows that would even be open to that uh, innovation in public education in particular? And listen, I I, I think a lot of times uh, it 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 sounds like folks are you know you're you're attacking teachers when you say things like that. Listen, I'm married a teacher. Uh, my my brother uh, is uh, my middle brother is is a teacher. Uh, I have seen firsthand and been in the classroom uh, on on long days and nights helping um, teachers do what they do. And it's it's incredible. And I will tell you, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask Graham is I, I feel like we as a society have um, much like we do with police officers have just left all of our problems at the schoolhouse doorstep. Right. And mm -hmm. we expect teachers to wave a magic wand and solve all of their problems. I, I did appreciate Graham's candor in terms of, hey, listen, school was never meant to do that. Right. Uh, so we need to reset our expectations. Um, long winded way of saying, um, do we have do we have a bureaucracy that is open to disrupt that it, that is that would allow innovation? I think it's the same challenge that any governmental organization has when it comes to innovation. I, I think I saw this trying to disrupt the military, both in the tech side and how we do personnel policy. There's a reason the bureaucracy grew. There's a reason why we have centralized school districts. All these things have historical roots. The question we have to ask is, are they still relevant in 2022 and the 21st century? And I think one of the reasons I asked Graham that question about what is the purpose of K-12 education in the 21st century 
is I'm worried that we are not training the next generation in the right way to solve problems that are going to be increasingly complex. And the way that I tend to, to think about that is I did very well in school because I was able to focus on problems that had to find answers. And I always knew that if I worked hard enough, there would always be an answer that the teacher would want to hear or that I could put down that could be accepted. And as I've gotten in the real world, I realized that the most interesting and important questions don't have defined answers. Mm -hmm. They might have more than one answer. They might not even have a wrong answer. And so how do you develop the mindsets and the skills to just dig and dig and dig and search, not even knowing what the end state is, but knowing that something magical is out there? And being on this entrepreneurial journey, like I don't know if there's a right answer or not. I can't just sit down and fill in the Scantron or do the proof on the on the blackboard that'll get me to product market fit or profitability. It's a big fat cloud of ambiguity. And are our schools training our students, top, middle, or bottom, to face a world that is not going to have easy answers? And I'm just not sure we are. Yeah, no, I, I would I would agree. You know, one of one of the also the the challenges that I struggle with is so we we find ourselves in this inflationary environment, right? So we, we're seeing these eight and a half pi eight and a half percent CPI prints. Wages are are rising, which is a great thing, but wages are rising because you know we we have to play. For, uh, it, it's in addition to having to compete for labor, which means we have to pay people more. Uh, the the people in turn have to pay higher cost of living, et cetera. I think the challenge we have um, from a, a business standpoint is in the business community, you know, we are very comfortable um, paying up for talent, right? So we find ourselves in a competitive and a tight labor market. That means I'm going to have to increase. I've got a job posting out there and it's it's one of, of thousands that are that are open in the marketplace. So I'm going to have to compensate that role higher, compensate that role more to, to attract a, a higher caliber uh, quality of, of talent. But then at the same time, I think we even as business leaders hit this psychological wall when we when we view public education. Right. And 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 we don't, for whatever reason, uh, aren't willing to uh, think the same way about teachers in the classroom. Uh, and I will say to to those aren't that, that aren't familiar with what DISD has done to their credit. Um, DISD over the past several years has made a concerted effort to pay their their teachers more. And so they they recently announced here that the average starting salary uh, for a teacher in DISD is now $60,000 a year. And based wow. on uh, the the competency and, and the performance of that teacher in the classroom, um, they can earn upwards of $90,000 a year. I think that's phenomenal. What, what we do in the business community is reward our top performers with high salaries and high bonuses. And why in the world, to your point, Ben, in terms of those most responsible outside of, of the parents uh, and the family for, for preparing students for the world ahead, why wouldn't we want to compensate those folks as, as, as best we could, as well as having high standards for, for their, their output, right? And I just think for whatever reason, the business community, we're, we're willing to pay people in the workplace, but not do so in the classroom. And I think that's a, that's a fundamental problem. Yeah, well, it gets into competition and, and what drives people's motivations. But even circling back to your reflection on, you know, is the bureaucracy able and willing to adopt new new ideas? You know, the litany of programs that Graham mentioned near the end that are coming to Texas alone actually gives me hope because I think many parents don't realize the resources that are out there. Certainly some do, and there's a reason why these, these schools like Synthesis and Enders and have, have popped up. Uh, but there are so many resources that parents can leverage outside the traditional schooling model that once those start to take hold, those will form their own nodes. I just, you know, and Graham alluded to this, but the impact that COVID had has been catastrophic to learning, but it's also been a boon for innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, you see a lot more people going the homeschooling route, and there are certainly challenges with homeschooling. But the communities and homeschoolers that I know actually have formed their own networks and their own communities of people to get the, the skills that are normally gotten in at a more formal public education setting with a more robust and a more flexible schedule. You see other programs that are creating pods, you know, where you'll hire a teacher 
just at a PhD program or out of mm-hmm. college and pay them $80,000 a year for 10 kids that really focus in on specific skill sets. As these things emerge and come to the fore, you're going to have something to fail, you'll have something to succeed, but it's going to be the creative destruction that drives the American economy forward. And I think America is on the cusp of some revolutions in education that we we don't appreciate, but that will have meaningful impact in our society. Yeah, you know, so it, it's that that creative destruction is is a really important point. And again, one of why I think it's why I am I'm a, a big proponent of school choice, and why I think competition amongst uh, low performing schools is so important to give parents the opportunity to not have their their children trapped uh, in a, in a low performing school. Um, there are a myriad of reasons and uh, of for for that to happen, and a lot of those reasons are often school specific. So there's not a, a blanket reason why why schools are are failing. But I do believe fundamentally injecting competition into a process is going to make the outcome better for all involved, first and foremost. But second, secondarily, I, I think the struggle there is whether whether that competition be closing uh, poor performing public schools or granting public dollars for charter and, and private school tuition. I think the challenge is how do you still ensure that you have a high quality, high performing classroom for those that are, you know, quote, left behind, right, that, that aren't in the lottery, that don't earn a seat at, at the table at, at the the new private school that, that is opened up? How do you ensure that uh, you're still focused on on the kids that are that are left behind there um so it's it again i don't i don't have the answer but certainly something that i think is important to remember absolutely well it's something that's you know recently gotten notoriety or excitement you know arizona just passed a pretty significant school reform bill that allows students to be funded as opposed to systems and what mm-hmm. they're doing is giving seven thousand dollars that we're normally going to go to a school district uh, to the parents to to spend however they want, whether mm-hmm. it's send their kid to public school or private school or augment their education. And I raise that to say it's likely that Texas could see something similar mm-hmm. emerge in this coming session. I know there's mm-hmm. a lot of work behind the scenes going on. Governor Abbott has recently come out and endorsed a proposal there. Um, and that would be a sea change in terms of how parents can allocate dollars and educate their own children. But at the end of the day, it comes back to what Graham was saying at the end is parents have to be involved. Mm-hmm. You have to, and I, I found myself, I'm, I think I'm more interested in education than most people I know. And yet I've deferred to the school I send my kids at to educate them. And that's, that's yeah. a choice we've made. And I've chosen not to lean in and do the augmentation things that I would love to do, but you know, they're probably getting good enough education. There's just so much we have at our fingertips to impart the type of life skills, knowledge, and cultural artifacts that are important to families that they can do these days. And I think that's convicting for me to think about how empowered I am to actually teach my kids in the way that I think they should be taught, as opposed to just deferring what to what the school board may have acceded to. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm so glad that you brought up with Graham you know, the fir- the first principles question of, you know, what is it that we're trying to accomplish with modern public education or, or modern education in, in general? And, you know, I bet you if you took, you know, you know, the the heads of, of you know, the, the top 10 largest ISDs across the state of Texas uh, and asked them that question, you would get 10 different answers. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and I think it just be, it, it's a really important question to, to level set when you're, when you're trying to accomplish a task, let alone one as important as educating our, our kids, you know, what is it that we're trying to accomplish with this? And is it we're trying to prepare folks for the, the workplace? We're trying to prepare folks for, for college. Well, okay, great. But what, what do that, what does that mean in terms of tangible delivery in terms of skill sets that they need to, when they, they walk across the threshold as five-year-olds into kindergarten and they, you know, leave as, you know, 17, 18-year-olds after 12th grade, what is it that they're able to go out into the, into the world and do? And I just don't think that's, that's a set of coherent, you know, deliverables. Certainly, you know, there, there's no doubt uh, on, on a piece of paper somewhere, this is, you know, the, the state of Texas says, you know, just 
by uh, core curriculum um, and standardized testing. This is what they need to be able to do. But, you know, nine times out of 10, um, it's just not the case. Or if it's it's a mis- mismatched skill set that they're walking into the world with. One of the questions I'm curious to get your thoughts on, when we talked about life skills and you know, I'd love to get your reaction. What are five skills you wish you had learned in high school that you think should be mandatory for kids to learn in 2022? Professor Coleman, I was not told there would be a pop quiz today. <laughs> so <laughs> no, um, great. Listen, great question. I first and foremost, and that that's why I brought it up. I even it, I was a smart ass granted, but even even in high school, I was like, why in the world? Are are German and French an option? Right? It just it, and 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 the even then in the modern economy, it just didn't make sense. So I, I think there's a lot in terms of just mismatched, mismatched um, skill sets and curriculum. But I, I think first and foremost, I wish that you know because the the majority, the vast majority of students will come out of high school and will not achieve a a, a four year degree. Again, like achieving a four-year degree, you know, sets you apart in society somehow. We've talked about that before, and that's mm-hmm. just horseshit. Um, but at, at the same time, you know, meaning they're going to, um, you know, graduate from high school and directly go into the workforce or go into the military or do any number of different things. And I think those folks should have a baseline fundamental understanding of finance, right? And what is, what is what is the time value of of money, and how does interest compound, and what does it mean to take out a mortgage, and what does it mean to take out a car loan, uh, and and I think these are all things that, regardless of your ultimate education uh, uh, attainment, those are all things we're going to need to learn how to do right, and and we all need to have a better understanding and a better financial literacy. Um, and so I think that's the the first and foremost, what I wish uh, coming out of school, I would have had a better uh, grasp of and certainly my everybody around me. Let me think about some others, but I think that's just top of the list. What what I think would have been yeah. really helpful. Yeah. How about a you? A couple of my own. Yeah. A couple come to mind. I think personal finance. Absolutely. And I think all the things you mentioned are spot on. I would almost I would also add like the impact of taking out loans for college, you know, what, yeah. the, what the, the stories around people at 45, we're still paying those off. But I think for me, one is the art of persuasion. Mm. So not just how to persuade people, but to recognize when the dark arts are being used against you, whether it's for mm-hmm. marketing or political purposes. I think, I think that would be really, really useful. The second is related to health. So understanding diet. Like yeah. truly what, what goes into your body and what impact it has on you. And I say that having just drunk a milkshake because I was craving some sugar before this, <laughs> but you know, the, the tie between the body and the mind and then physical fitness, yeah. you know, how does, how does, how does physical, how can you lift or run or do cardio, how does bind together and what are the impacts on your physical experience? I think that's, that's a really important thing to understand. And then, you know, maybe this shouldn't be a formal curriculum item. But honestly, like how to engage with the opposite sex, like just yeah. understanding how the different sexes view dating and relationships. And I guess you kind of get it in health class or whatever, but it's it's all biological as opposed to, like there are some real interesting psychological elements. And the last would probably be how to navigate the internet. The internet's a tool, and this actually just came up as we were talking to Graham, but it's a tool for good or ill. You know, how can you use things like Minecraft or social media to build a brand? Mm-hmm. How can you use things like YouTube or Wikipedia to really get deep on a topic? Mm-hmm. How can you avoid the dark parts of the web or at least understand they're there and what the trade-offs are? You think about it, and there was a there was a study I just read that 70 like something like 74% of teenagers spend their entire day immersed in the internet. Like wow. that they're self-admitting to that. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how to navigate it. Like mm-hmm. I'm an adult, I don't know how to navigate the internet. They're spending their entire lives on this platform. Sure. Um, what is an internet 101 orientation? Just basic functionality, but how should you how should you avoid the bad things or the scams or being induced to to send things to someone, whether it's financial information or mm-hmm. you know pictures of yourself to others? Mm-hmm. 
there's no training whatsoever on that. And that's what's getting folks in trouble or they're missing opportunities on the flip side. Yeah. So there's just something that comes to mind for me. So I, I think those are all, all fantastic. One of the, one of the things that, that just came to mind is I also really would have appreciated, cause I think it's just one of those things you just have to kind of learn by doing and, and that's great, but it would have been really nice to have a better baseline uh, to better understand how to interview for a job and how to put a resume together because again those are life skills that regardless of what you do and i mean regardless of whether you go to college or not you know you're you're by and large not going to understand how to do it and as somebody who failed miserably at doing it uh, at a number of jobs early on and now interviews people and and looks at people that just you can tell (laughs) what hopefully it's their first interview otherwise they have no clue what's going on right You, you wish that everybody had a better baseline understanding of how to put a resume together yeah. and how to inter- how to seek out job listings, how to apply for those jobs. If you're granted a job interview, how to conduct yourself on the phone, how to conduct yourself in person, all those kinds of things that, again, I think uh, would benefit everybody across the board because it's something we're all going to have to do, right? Totally agree. Totally agree. Well, in closing, Jeff, I'm curious, what's your view of your kids' education so far? Well, how would you grade it on a, on a scale of, of A to F? I, I, I would give I would give uh, my kids education so far uh, in in A plus. Uh, you know, and and I will tell you, we we moved uh, to the school district we're in specifically for that reason. Certainly, pay a, a premium to do so. But as as a family, that's that was one of our our priorities, and uh, we are incredibly blessed to live in a great school district where kids can focus on what's being taught to them in the classroom. And I think the the fundamental challenge for the vast majority of, of school districts, I mean, just take DISD, take, take Houston ISD, ISD or Austin ISD, we're just talking to Graham, take any large ISD in the, in the state of Texas and DISD in particular, and you know, it's something like 90% of, of kids in DISD are on hot lunch, right? And so you've got kids that are coming to school in the largest school districts uh, across the state of Texas, and the solid meals that they get on a daily basis are at school. They get breakfast, they get lunch. So if I walk into a classroom hungry, if I walk into a classroom and there's strife at home, I walk into a classroom and I've got a single mother, single father, and I can the the anxiety of having to support children on one income is palpable. And I have to, that 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 hangs over everything at home. I come into a classroom and I've got a family life that's, you know, whether it's abuse or violence or drug abuse or alcohol abuse, and I walk into the classroom and I'm expected to excel on a standardized test. I, I think these are some of the, the and, and I say that in the context of my children are blessed in that they do not deal with that. Their school district does not deal with that. Now, one of the main reasons, arguably, why the, the school district performs so well, but how is it that we as leaders in the state of Texas can address some of those other issues, right? I don't know how you legislate a nuclear family. I don't know how you legislate individuals to make better choices in life, whether that be picking better mates, whether that be not abusing drugs or alcohol. I don't know how you legislate that. And so that's sensing a little bit of frustration in that these are issues that are palpable that drag down students that that come into class and they want to learn and they want to do well. But there are so many issues that there's so many hurdles between them and the chalkboard that they've got to get through, right? And I don't yeah. know the answer to that, but I do know that as fathers and as business leaders, you know, that's that's the the calling of of our lifetime, right? And 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 figuring out because so many uh, of our other uh, issues across the state, that's the genesis of, right? But that's Absolutely. that's a long winded long winded answer. How would how would you rate your uh, your kids' education to date? I think it's good. My wife and I have good conversations about how we should educate our kids. And we're in a very traditional Christian classical school, which has all of the pros and cons that that you can think of. You know, the kids are pushed. They're reading traditional literature. They're memorizing things. I've always had a bit more of of an edgy view of the world and how do we 
bring in some some disruption? How do we push them? How do we use new technology? How do we train them in non-traditional things? You know, what's the point of education? Is it to just create good citizens who can speak Greek and Latin, but to have no greater ambition to change the world? And so I guess I always want a little more pushing of the envelope. Yeah. So says the, figure... former, says the former fighter pilot. <laughs> I know, right? Right. But you know, we go to great school, fantastic people, great community. The foundations are solid. And I wonder if that's going to be enough to thrive yeah. in the 21st century. I yeah. just don't know. Well, the one thing I, I can just say in closing is back to your phenomenal idea about a class to help us better understand the opposite sex. <laughs> Chapter one, she's not calling you back because she's just not that into you. So. <laughs> I think both you and I learned that lesson many times the hard way. Uh, all right, uh, well, Jeff. We'll- no, no, I, 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 this, this has been this has been great, Ben. I appreciate the conversation. It was great to to, to chat with Graham. Um, and uh, uh, thanks so much to everybody for listening to another episode of Texas Rising. Thank you for listening to another episode of Texas Rising with Jeff Bailey and Ben Coleman. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that's it for us this week. And remember, folks, keep on the straight and narrow. Don't mess with Texas. And we'll see you next week on Texas Rising.